0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 93. Sharker met Henry Francis Finn and Lieutenant Francis George Farewell in August 1824. The ivory traders were seeking his permission to live and work at Port Natal. Cape Governor Lord Charles Somerset had rejected Farewell's request that he annex the region, so the only option left for the traders was to work with Charco. In episode 92, I explained how the Amazulu reacted to Finn and Farewell, how the horses in particular were a shock. The dress code was also a surprise, although their skin colour seemed less of a surprise. These Englishmen, by now, had been burned brown by months in the African sun, so there was not much made of their skin colour by the oral history tellers, they were more interested in what the Europeans were wearing. As you've heard, Shaka was able to talk to these traders because of the Amatrosa convict, Jakot M'simbiti, he was translating. The only problem was he was not very good at his job. Lamba Manzi, as he was known to the Zulu, swim the seas, mangled English meaning. However, Shaka immediately grasped a few important facts from M'simbiti as they conversed in Zulu, which is similar to isiXhosa. Firstly, He knew that the traders carried guns and these weapons would be useful. The visitors were also part of a much broader trading powerhouse. Shaka understood that too. He had heard of the power of the British and wanted to approach the empire. He was not going to war against them, from his comments. We know, though, he believed his warriors would defeat British soldiers anyway. And yet, Shaka quickly realized that using the settler guns, he could overcome some of the chieftains who were still refusing to conser him. He welcomed the traders, conferring on them the title of Abaquetu, our people, our housemen, our kingsmen, trusted close confidants. He allowed them to trade and hunt with some provisos. Shaka was doing what the early Amatkoza did. He was co-opting the white visitors. When it became apparent they weren't going to leave, he slotted them into an already existing social and political system. They would be client chiefs sending him cattle every year and perhaps sending them their Amabuto, their warriors, in Finn and Farewell's case, not so much the Amabuto as their horses and guns. By October 1824, there were two dozen settlers living at Port Natal. Although that number dwindled to six by the end of the year, life was really hard in the Little Bay Hamlet. Swim the waters, Slumbermanzi, was going to play a significant role over the next four years, but his end was going to be gory. He prepped Shaka before the settlers arrived and his tales were loaded with antipathy. Finn and Farewell had arrived at Shaka's Kwabuluwe, great place, and stayed with him for several days. That was in August. During this period, Thumbamunzi revealed his ambivalence about their arrival. Finn wrote in his journal that, In calling the interpreter, who was in a hut close by and could not help but hear me, he made no answer after several times calling on my repeating to call him. He asked me insolently what I wanted with him proceeding on me. I reproached him for his insolence when he told me, We were not in the colony now. Yes, Clumbermansey knew exactly how important he was to both sets of people. He was in the middle. His history is inextricably linked with the big names we've heard, and yet he remains one of those people who's disappeared as we historians have fleshed out the past. You see, Jakot Imsambiti, alias Tlumba was imprisoned with Ngwele, the war doctor, on Robin Island. He was part of Ngwele's warrior crowd. He had a checkered past. Jakot Imsambiti was captured by the Dutch before the British arrived on the frontier, then he escaped helping Amatoza cattle raiders on the Cape Colony border as a guide. He was arrested again. This time he was shambocked to within an inch of his life. And as the Dutch were about to execute him, they changed their minds. This was before the British took over in the early years of the 19th century. Then, during the frontier war of 1819, Major Fraser, who was fighting alongside Colonel John Graham, used Ms. Sambiti as an interpreter, but he ran away and ended up near Grahamstown once more. He tried to sell ivory at the Theopolis mission but failed, so stole cattle instead and tried to make his getaway. He was arrested and dragged in chains to Grahamstown from where he was dispatched to Robben Island alongside war doctor Englele. There is a strange tale about this trip that James Saunders' king on his brig Salisbury carried Englele and Imsumbiti to the infamous island off Cape Town. And it's said that King took pity on Imzambiti on the way, loosened his chains and gave him some brandy. This implied Imzambiti was forever in King's debt. At least, that's the story that youngster Nathaniel Isaacs tells. And he has quite a story too, but we'll get to him in future podcasts. By 1822, Imzambiti miraculously made it back to Algoa Bay after being released from Robin Island. When Captain W.F.W. W. Owen used him as an interpreter as he sailed along the eastern coast of South Africa, M'sumbeetee was apparently not to be trifled with, described by Owen as very handsome and strong and tall, and possessed a commanding figure. Imsambiti enjoyed displays of power, showing off how far he could fling a spear, and while with Shaka he would often repeat this long spear trick. Some historians say Imsambiti fled the nasty sailors at St. Lucia after a punch-up with one. Others, that the nasty sailors left him behind or cast him away on that beautiful beach off the extensive estuary. And so the ex-con found his place with Shaka. Later, he'd be seconded to the Tlele people living along the Umlazi River just south of Port Natal, helping Magai of the Tlele Palae with the settlers. It was there that his sons grew up, including Pili and Mkunzi, who were to make names for themselves later. One of the greatest warriors of all time from this region by the name of Zulu Ka Norgondaya named his own son Shlamba after Shambamanzi, so he was obviously highly respected. Unfortunately, he was to meet a sticky end, but we'll leave that saga for April 1831. Back to August 1824, Francis Farewell and Henry Francis Finn were palavering with Shaka and admiring his people's discipline. The Amazulu storytellers report that Shaka was not exactly enamoured by the Europeans and believed they were in debt or of poor personal circumstances to have to come here to beg him for help. Or else, why would they seek to live under Shaka's armpit, as one Zulu put it. And he was quite adept at showing the new arrivals who was boss. The first night at their meeting, thousands of head of cattle were paraded past them. Then women in their hundreds entered the kraal, dressed in leather skirts and not much else. In their right hand, they carried a long, thin stick. It represented what we know as the reed dance. The dance duly commenced, and the visitors were entranced while the women moved past, singing their way out of the kraal. Immediately after they moved off, 150 women from Shaka's isigodlo gathered and began to dance in front of Shaka and the travellers. The women had different coloured beads strung across their breasts, and a bunch of black feathers in their hair all had brass collars around their necks, a sign of wealth. Then Shaka stood up and danced with these women while the councillors and inner circle did the same. After around half an hour, they stopped, and Shaka made a speech which Imsumbiti failed to translate. But Finn and Farewell were stunned by the utter silence that reigned as Sharker spoke. At seven o'clock that night, it was time for Finn and Farewell to put on their own show, a kind of violent fireworks display. We sent off four rockets and fired eight guns, wrote Finn. The next day, Sharker began discussing the gun's effectiveness during a battle. Wouldn't the bullets bounce off the thick shields at a distance, he asked. How close would they have to be fired in order to overcome his men's hard shields? Then Chaka made the observation that these weapons took too long to reload these muskets and his warriors would make short work of any army that used them. They moved too fast. The British would find that out later at Isandlwana and by then they weren't even using muskets anymore but breech-loading rifles. Just to show how powerful the muskets were, the settlers headed down to a nearby river, probably the Mfolozi, and shot a hippo. That answered Sharker's question about the hardness of the shields, but he chose to ignore the obvious and logical conclusion. No muti or tough hide would protect a warrior against a chunk of lead, 0.75 inches in diameter and weighing around 38 grams. Some basic physics, even at half a kilometer away, should the ball hit the shield it was going to pass through it. The arrival of these muskets were to doom the elephants in Port Natal and on the felt and most of the hippo too. And of course, Shaka deployed the firearms as a new weapon of war against nearby peoples while believing his warriors could escape death from it themselves. It was a day or so later that Finn mentioned to Shaka that he also understood medicine and you know now how the Amazulu regard those with a skill in meds. It was Richly woven through the concept of good and evil, so Sharker decided to test Finn. The Englishman, by the way, did actually have some medical background as what was called a lolly boy, as they were known at London hospitals. Someone who'd wheel the sick about and fetch and carry. Not exactly a doctor, but he observed what was going on years before as he shuffled around the wards. So Shaka ordered him to treat an ill chieftain, a man of minor power, according to oral tradition. When the man didn't improve, Shaka showed off some traditional Zulu medicine in the form of purgatives, mainly on his minor chief and then on some of the women of his Isuodlo, and then on himself. This led to some vomiting and a certain amount of horror amongst the visitors, at least according to Finn's notes. By now, The other members of this little group of traders were distinctly uneasy and wanted to leave. But Finn was entranced by the Zulu and by Shaka. Farewell and Pettersen and the other settlers headed back to Port Natal a day or so later, but Finn stayed on. According to Zulu oral historians, Finn spent the days reading in his hut and only emerged at night because of the heat of this region. One night, as he sat gazing at the scenes of kraal revelry and the dancing, lit by bunches of reeds. Someone screamed, and the lights were extinguished. People began shouting and running about. Finn was terrified. What was going on? Shaka had been stabbed through his left arm, and the point of the assegai had penetrated his ribs, and in the chaos, his would-be assassin managed to make his escape. Shaka was in a bad way, spitting blood, so it is obvious his lungs had been pierced. Finn had only a little chamomile tea which he administered while the king's own medicine specialist went to work to stop the bleeding. A murmuring swept through Kwa Finn wrote later that the people believed the Ndwandwe, Zwide's people, had tried to kill their king. That was unlikely. Zwide right now was living northeast of Delagoa Bay near the Pedi people and was showing no inclination of heading back to his old stomping ground. The problem with Finn's account is that the AmaZulu account is far more specific and Zwide doesn't get a mention. Yes, say the local historians, the attempted killing did take place and that Shaka pulled the spear out of his arm and ribs himself. The weapon was rounded at the end of the haft in a style used by the KwaBe people and they were duly blamed. A man amongst the Zulu by the name of Siquo was attacked and killed. He was formerly an induna of the Kwabe chieftain Pakatwile. Shaka had a love-hate relationship with the Kwabe. Remember, they predated his empire and were a proud people. Some of the Kwabe who were at Kwabuluwayo fled, and Shaka is reported to have rounded up the others and had them killed. An impi was sent to seek retribution from the Kwabe, and they were told to kill the men by stabbing them only on the left side, as Shaka had been stabbed. But then it was over, and Shaka recovered, that Kwabe was spared. There are various conflicting reports about what happened after the attempted assassination. Finn does not report widespread mayhem, rather, a kind of organized revenge, but wrote that a few men were dragged to Shaka, expertly killed with one assegai strike in the manner of the Romans, then had their right ears cut off, and the bodies dumped about a mile away from Kwabe. People gathered to beat these bodies with sticks and finally the right ears were burned. A ritual that cleansed Shaka of this evil. Then the council of men ordered all ornaments to be removed and for the shaving of heads to be banned until Shaka was well. But all of this pointed to the fact that plots against Shaka were increasing even amongst Shaka's own brothers, Dingan and Mlangana, And there is some suspicion that they were in fact behind this attempt on his life that night, and they would eventually prevail. Farewell rushed to Shaka's side upon hearing of this incident, along with the master of his sloop, the Julia, a man by the name of W.H. Davis. Somehow at this point, Farewell managed to convince the Zulu king to grant him a sale of land, which he wrote as, in full possession and perpetuity, for the sole use of Farewell and his heirs. It was signed by Shaka in a huge scrawl, dated both 7th and 8th of August 1824, witnessed by Tlambamanzi, Msimbiti the Translator, Shaka's uncle Mbekwana, and two other high-ranking members of his council. Farewell Finn Davis, Henry Ogle, and August Zinke countersound on behalf of the settlers. Then Khoisan Assistants, Goliath Fire, Frederick Duster, and Joseph Powell also signed. All parties initialed that they knew that the translation had been accurate. Farewell now owned, at least in his mind, the land 100 miles inland from Port Natal, up the coast around 20 miles and about 10 miles to the south. This document gave Farewell rights to all land, rivers, mines, vegetation and all articles of all denominations contained therein. Crucially, the agreement included this line supposedly agreed to by Sharker. I hereby acknowledge, as the chief of the said country, for full power and authority over such natives that like to remain there after this public grant, promising to supply him with cattle and corn when required, sufficient for his consumption as a reward for his kind attention to me in my illness from a wound. Farewell, in particular, understood the ramifications of someone announcing later that the translation had been incorrect or that the process had been manipulated. This document was to set off a firestorm because Imsumbiti was not fluent enough in English and the outline of what was agreed to featured legalese. This is the sort of document signed during the colonial period that has caused a lot of trouble. Farewell's covering letter to Lord Charles Somerset was dated 27th of August, not the 7th. This is at the heart of disputes over land in South Africa, that the leaders like Shaka identified management and ownership as two completely different things. The phrase, land grant, is part of this document. Granted land, in Farewell's definition, meant he had title or freehold rights. Shaka understood Farewell to be operating as a chief, which meant the land and everything on it could be taken away in the blink of the king's eye. In perpetuity. Imagine Imsumbiti translating that line. Finn and Farewell had already noted that this translator had problems explaining the merits of musketry to Shaka. He just did not have an advanced understanding of English, and Zulu was not his first language either. Isikosa and Isizulu are similar, but they're not exactly the same. Farewell's covering letter also mentioned that the poor settlers of the Cape could now head to Port Natal for what he called a Comfortable Asylum. He also implied that the territory was depopulated, not containing more than three or four hundred inhabitants who appear much pleased at the manner of its disposal. In other words, happy about these settlers being granted land. This depopulation phrase is another touchstone moment. I'm going to deal with the concept as we go along, particularly covering the next decade of historical goings-on. It was the period that the Great Trek began, that Tempikane or Dipikane was on the go, and much of the story centers on just how empty was Southern Africa as European settlers moved inland. A thorny and rather touchy subject, but we have to get to the bottom of it. As usual, the story is complex, and there's a lot of hubris about it. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It helps make the series more visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com I'm also on Twitter, while it survives. You can direct message me there at Des Latham. Until next, salagatli.